Hello. I hope you'll enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives November 2017. And thank you. Passages in the Pali Canon, which is the repository of early Buddhist wisdom, along with the Chinese Aganas there, the earliest surviving text uh, accredited to the historical Buddha. And uh, in there, there are uh, stories that nuns and monks living 2,500 years ago would, when meditating in isolation, would experience the presence of ghostly uh, beings, beings that didn't have any material form, that were in essence, uh, uh, we should say, spirits of some form. And uh, some of them were known as devas. Devas are like angelic beings, and they were said to have been people who, through devotion and spiritual practice and generosity and compassion towards others, lived very peaceful lives and died with peaceful minds. And so uh, in the Buddhist folklore, when they were reborn, they attained a state of um, uh, a kind of blissful, transcendent spirits that would roam around and would at times... Uh, bring comfort to people when they were going through difficult times. And um, on the other hand, there was also pitas and other ghouls. Pitas were uh, sometimes known as hungry ghosts, and people who had lived lives of violence and uh, uh, unending craving, who never addressed addiction or self-harm, who led lives without any uh, peace, would re be reborn as pethas. And these, of course, created spectral beings that the monks and nuns found very frightening. And so in these suttas, there's this stories that when uh, people would meditate in isolation, they would start to experience the presence of these two types of beings. And what they would do was twofold. They would, one, practice metta. They would chant the metta sutta, especially the sabe, sata, suki, hantu, which is, may all beings be peaceful and uh, wishing that all beings would attain that state of tranquility. And then there was also devanusati, which would be to summon these devas, these angelic beings, but also reflect on all the peaceful, kind, compassionate people we've known who've left marks in our lives. So I'd like to read these, these suttas from a psychological perspective and tell you why I think they still have something to offer someone like me, who's a secular Buddhist, who has no uh, real interest in the sort of claims about ghosts and, and uh, spirits and so forth, but I still believe these teachings have a lot to offer. 
from a, uh, let's say, a contemporary therapeutic perspective, the core human drive that we all have is from the earliest experience in life to connect, to find a caregiver that will be able to understand our states of being, which are essentially our emotional states, which convey the infant's needs, fears, discomfort, stress to the parent. Emotions are signals urging us internally as feelings to act, to take um, some form of protection or seek comfort. Externally, emotions are messages to other people expressing our states of being, our needs. They're forms of communication. So <clears throat> the child, until roughly the age of four, when we start shifting from the right hemisphere to the left, but the early connections we establish are entirely emotional, embodied, right hemispheric, nonverbal. And the child desperately needs to have the sense of a few things. According to Kohat, the child needs to feel seen, to feel the presence of a caregiver, an older person that is secure, that creates a zone of safety for the child, as some therapists know it. And a place where our life is both appreciated, understood, and when we are upset, soothed. So we want the feeling that there is someone there who understands us, who cares about us, who will soothe us when we're distressed. That is a core drive that goes throughout the human life and is never alleviated. There is no such thing as graduating from the need for uh, feeling someone is being, we're being attuned by another being, which means seen, eye contact, looked at, where we're being understood emotionally, mirrored, where we are safe and secure, where we are appreciated. And these create what's called a secure base, which is a very important concept and something I'll be doing a lot of teaching on in the new year. So without the sense of another that is caring, that is appreciative, that acknowledges our struggles, that knows our journey, without that sense, we begin to dysregulate. We begin to decompensate. People in uh, solitary confinement in as short as 48 hours begin to literally to compensate, which means they stop functioning in a way that is uh, their normative states and their socialized states. Uh, we start to hallucinate very quickly in isolation. We start to uh, experience all kinds of uh, compensations in an attempt to establish some form of emotion regulation because deep down inside, human beings cannot regulate their emotions alone. We are a co-regulating species. The way we process an emotion is to feel it, to allow it to arise and pass, and then to disclose that experience to another human being. And when we do that, the emotion is processed, and we then can get some sense of closure on an emotional event in our life. When that gets cut off, because there's no one to disclose our emotions to when we're in isolation, then people begin 
to create the sense of another being being there. They begin to uh, create the sense that there is someone else, and I'll talk more about that. Before we get there, uh, a little bit more on what we desperately seek or most fundamentally need as human beings. The great existentialist <coughs> philosopher Martin Buber uh, and I always liked Buber because he was a Jew like myself. All the other existentialists and that kind of, well, let's just say they were the Goyim. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> nah. Heidegger was kind of a Nazi, but the rest were okay. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, Martin Buber said a meaningful self, a meaningful sense of identity only arises paradoxically in relationship with another. That the entire human experience is one of uh, interpersonal exchange. It's only through the dyadic moment with another human being where we disclose how we feel, where we feel really seen, that we attain any kind of real humanity. In isolation, we become increasingly reactive, frightened, scared. We actually begin to uh, view ourselves as separate and threatened by the world around us. So he said there's two kinds of ways to experience other people. One way was the way we generally do in our lives, which is I-it, where when we're talking to other people, we're relating to them as if they're objects that commute when, if you have to go through the nightmare of Union Square, where there's literally floods of people coming, and it's almost like automatons, it seems, <laughs> a wall of robots coming towards one, and we relate to people very often as a sense that they don't have any interiority, any inner mind, any needs or feelings, life history. We view them as these things that are sometimes in our way or sometimes can be helpful for us. Like, uh, <clears throat> And the more we engage or interact with others from a practical but partially engaged where you sort of, when you're talking to the uh, Lift driver or the, the, the person who's blocking the door on the subway or whatever, we're not fully experiencing them as having a state of consciousness, a mind. We're engaging with them as if they are almost an inanimate object that can somehow speak. Um, so we're getting people to do what we want. It's a utilitarian way of doing it, but it's a way of engaging with others where we don't have any sense that really there's an, another mind present with its own fears, desires, intentions, its own concerns, its own triggers, its own losses, and so forth. For Bur Martin Buber, this kind of engagement leads to absolutely no spiritual growth, no human growth, it turns us into essentially very reactive, cordoned off, fearful, non-engaged uh, people who don't embrace life, who view everybody else as somehow uh, some kind of thing to be dodged or manipulated. For Buber, the only way we, ex we experience any kind of spiritual growth 
our depth and our humanity is to engage with other people non-objectively, where we experience them as having an entirely different perspective than our own, and their perspective is just as valuable and should be taken into uh, consideration. We should never, in Buber's view, ever think that our perspective is better or more objective. We should always view the truth as something that's established collaboratively. This is what I experienced. What did you experience? How did you feel? This is what I felt. And then through that collaboration, we arrive at some sense of what has occurred, how to process it, how to understand it. So the tendency when we go through breakups or disappointing events at work to try to figure it out ourselves to boober just leads to reactive, dramatic, and essentially very personalizing where we view everything as just happening to me. When we disclose with another mind and we take into account that other mind's experiences, we take life less personally, we see how our experience is far more universal. We begin to understand how support and interaction can give us different perspectives on the events of our lives. This is now used in therapy. It's known as mentalizing, and it's been shown to be the way to treat borderline personality disorders and other cluster B personality disorders, to take into consideration the need we all have for another mind, another perspective, to process that we cannot in any objective, even, well, we can't be objective anyway, but we can't come up with any meaningful interpretation of our events and our experience without collaboration. The human mind is not set up to establish meaning on its own. From Buber, meaning is always collaborative. So the sense of another we can see from just this perspective as well as the perspective of attachment theory and objects relations therapies and everyone basically after Melanie Klein in the last 60 years established that the sense of being with other minds is absolutely necessary, that we need to feel seen, appreciated, understood, and there needs to be someone that we interact with to get any kind of perspective on life. So in isolation, we start to compensate for our isolation by creating the sense that there is another mind present, but we don't create it from an actual person, because we're in isolation. Guess how we create it? Any guy? What? Imagination. Imagination, but what would we base that imagination on? Our past experience. Yeah, but what past experience? What? Early childhood? Yep, parents, caregivers. The early childhood experience creates introjected uh, inner voices. We create inner chatter from literally internalizing the verbal exchanges with our parents. When Vygotsky studied uh, how uh, children around two and a half and three started to get to the very cusp of thinking, inner chatter, he found what they would do was simply repeat to themselves the words that their parents told them, like, don't cross the street, don't run in the hall, don't pull the cat's tail, don't throw blocks at your sister, and so forth. So we interject the words of our parents, which creates the inner chatter, which then 
creates what's called in Freudian language the superego, which then creates that judge, critic, uh, feeling of that person that generally we do a very good job of combining and turning those thoughts into our own and believing, oh, that's my thinking. But in extraordinary isolating circumstances where our emotions become so separate from the superegoic inner parent that has the judgments and the criticisms, then literally what we do is we begin to project that inner voice externally. The temporal lobe literally starts creating the sense that there's someone there. We see this, uh, and it's not visual like it's in television shows. There's a lot of television shows these days that when somebody dies, they create the sense of a presence by literally showing the dead person, which actually in grief and in loss process doesn't happen. People don't literally see the lost. What they do is feel the presence the feeling that there's someone there. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that. We see this very often in people who, in isolation, will tend to have increasing beliefs in an ever-present in, uh, uh, interactive God. They will have UFO sightings, which are statistically far more prevalent in isolated communities. They will begin to believe in aliens. They will begin to actually see, well, in the 1950s, it was Soviet spies. I gather today people believe it's the Taliban or something like that. Isolated individuals compensate for lack of human interaction by creating, projecting externally the need for the sense of being witnessed, seen, uh, being not alone. It's such an important need. Solo mountain climbers have been known to engage in uh, ongoing dialogues with their equipment. <laughs> Sailors will have conversations as well with parts of the ship. That's solo sailors. Endurance athletes have been known to have conversations with mailboxes and mall yard, yard you know, uh, markers. Um, in the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks, <laughs> this is not at all abnormal when he requisitioned a uh, volleyball and turned it into Wilson. That was not at all abnormal. That is what people do when they are in isolation, when they don't feel the presence of someone observing, appreciating, taking them in, because again, that is our core need. In lucid dreaming, where the right hemisphere is actually governing our experience, people will very often experience the sense that there's another being, another person, in the room or house with them, though they won't actually see. It's just that felt presence. In solitary confinement, it's sort of 48 hours, people begin to project the sense that there's someone in their cell with them. Lonely individuals will anthropomorphize, which means project human qualities onto their pets and start to have dialogues and start to sometimes, if they had judgmental caregivers, they will start to believe that their cats are judging them. <laughs> <coughs> the presence of another 
is exceptionally uh, foundational. In sleep deprivation, the presence of another happens very quickly. Lindbergh, uh, in his autobiography of his transatlantic flight to Paris, said, in quotes, the fuselage behind me became filled with ghostly presences, vaguely outlined forms riding with me in the plane, conversing and advising me, discussing problems of my navigation, reassuring me, and giving me messages of importance. The Buddha had his own uh, projections. It was known as Mara. Fundamentalists, Buddhist fundamentalists, there are some of them, believe that Mara was literally a demonic uh, spectral figure that would visit the Buddha and tell the Buddha that his, his spiritual journey was a waste of time and that he should go back to his home and continue uh, in his life where he was a very wealthy man who owned a number of, of houses and had uh, a very successful agricultural holdings, rice. And uh, I utterly reject the idea that Mara was a real spectral being. Uh, any uh, psychological reading of the text immediately presents the obvious interpretation. The Buddha's father, Suddhodana, said the exact same things to the Buddha as Mara, who would visit the Buddha after, directly after Suddhodana's death. Right after the Buddha's father dies, uh, Mara starts showing up and starts confronting the Buddha and saying that it's just like his father, the spiritual path was a waste of time. So I think unless one is just, uh, well, I don't want to be insulting. Uh, just doesn't want to have any uh, realistic interpretation of the text, it's pretty clear that Mara was a interjection of the Buddha's father and that feeling that the presence of another was very often a critical, worldly, materialist uh, presence that the Buddha had to constantly stay on guard. And to So in the Buddha's case, he, the presence of the other was not positive, it was not loving, it was not compassionate, it was this doubting figure that would constantly say, oh, you're putting all this effort in, you're doing all this meditation, it's cold out, what the hell are you doing? Why don't you go back in, you got so much money, you could do so many things with it, why are you, etc., etc., etc. In the death of attachment figures in movies, again, sometimes that they're shown visually, but very often, I think accurately, the uh, ghost will be shown as this figure sort of quickly jumping just outside of vision, this sort of blur, this sense of something happening. And that actually is far closer to the case because when people experience loss, I know from my own experience with both my parents passing, there's not this sense of actually seeing them, but sometimes there's this sense in certain circumstances, a sense of presence happening just outside of one's periphery. And that's because the right hemisphere, which is timeless and stores the emotional memories of the parent, not the literal uh, narrative memories, but the emotional sense of the parent is stored in the right hemisphere. And the emotional right hemisphere doesn't know that people die until 
many, many, many years pass, and we go through every single context where we expect to see the person and they're not there. Mm -hmm. Until then, only the left hemisphere, the rational mind knows, but the emotional uh, embodied right hemisphere doesn't know. So again, this sense that there is someone with us is generally in most of our lives very well interwoven into our ongoing inner chatter, our inner narrative, our thinking. We do a good job in masking the fact that some of our thoughts are direct reproductions of the verbal experience we had with parents, judgmental caregivers, teachers, and sometimes the thoughts are things that are generated from much later experience with other people that are kind. And so we do a good job in believing that it's me doing all this thinking. But in other circumstances, as we begin to decompensate due to loneliness, isolation, lack of emotional connection with others, we begin to literally experience the uh, superego or the inner critic as literally this presence. So given this, the Buddhist instruction to cultivate, to summon angelic presences is actually simply to reparent oneself, to call into one's mind the loving, kind, accepting, uh, non-judgmental, appreciative, compassionate voices we've heard from other people. Because without summoning these devas, we will actually generally revert to the uh, introjected superego. And even with the best parents in the world, the child is very likely to only interject the most negative, frightening experience because the brain has what's called negativity bias. So even if your parents were largely loving and compassionate and kind and emotionally available, human beings, due to the amygdala, tend to interject the times when our parents were scary, rejecting, critical, shaming, judgmental. And so we will carry in us this feeling that the person who's observing us is actually critical. So the work of summoning the positive people, the positive regard, the people who were compassionate and safe is a very emotionally healthy thing to do. It's actually known very often as titrating in psychology. So the meditation I'm now going to lead you on is to do just that. We're going to first just quiet the mind, <clears throat> and then what we're going to do is we are going to <clears throat> summon the gentle spirits, the people who have been kind and compassionate, whether alive or dead in our lives, to summon the presence of their being uh, this kind a sense of the other being kind. And then finally, we're going to conclude with the meta chant. And this is the first time I've really led. Uh, uh, I've done the chants on retreats. but So the meta chant is simply wishing that all beings would, exp would have true peace and happiness. May all beings be peaceful. It's a wish to spread and radiate out this love and kindness that we seek for ourselves. The 
chant goes, Sabe sata suki hantu. When I uh, get to that point, I'll start, and you're all invited to join in. We'll gently raise the volume, and then we'll trail it out into silence. And that will be the end of the meditation. Okay? So you absolutely don't have to chant if you don't want to, but feel encouraged. So, find a really comfortable seated position. And... uh, Closing the eyes or lowering the eyes to look at the ground or in front of you. So let's take a few breaths just to first settle the body. If you want to settle the mind, the most efficient way is to work with the breath and the body, which is the language that the amygdala, which creates the fear and the core uh, release of cortisol that lies at the heart of anxiety, (coughs) stress. It doesn't understand language, but it does understand the body. (coughs) So take a nice full in-breath, and while doing that, lift your shoulders gently up as much as you feel comfortable, like you're trying to touch your ears. And hold them up, and then breathe out through the mouth, and drop them, and if it feels appropriate, gently pull back your shoulders so you open up your chest, and you feel a lot of space. When you open up your chest, the dorsal vagal vagus nerve sends a message back up to your limbic structure saying, I'm okay. Another way to do that, we're going to work with the abdomen. So take a next in-breath through the nose and tighten the muscles of the abdomen. Tuck in your belly. And then breathe out and soften the belly. Very good. Nice, soft abdomen. And then for the third in-breath, squinch the muscles of the face really tight, like you're making an ugly pinched face, locking the jaw, tightening the eyes, squinching the nose and the brow, and then breathe out, relaxing the micro-muscles around the eyes, 
allowing the jaw to relax and drop comfortably, unfurling the brow. And then take a nice quick survey of the lower body, making sure that all systems are go for liftoff, checking that the buttocks are relaxed, that the legs are in a comfortable position, making sure that your hands feel really, really comfortable. Just release any tension in the palms. So one of the most remarkable studies was known as a Wandering Mind is a Stressful Mind by Harvard psychologists. It was a large study and they showed that when we allow our minds to wander, they inevitably wander to eventually stressful thoughts and that people are generally the most unhappy in life when they're allowing their thoughts to simply skip from one, their attention to skip from one thought to another thought to another. Thoughts about what to do the rest of the day, what's going to happen in the future, why did this event happen, what did this person mean. Eventually, the thoughts become increasingly frightening or overwhelming. Mind wandering is actually the least pleasant state they found. So it's wonderful to think when we have a task that we need to focus on, but just allowing the mind to wander freely, very often it wanders into trouble like a small child left on its own in a park. So what we do is we give it what's called an anchor, some ongoing sensation to pay attention to. When we give the mind a task, that they found was an exceptionally pleasant state called flow or task positive. So meditation one anchor could be simply observing your body breathing in and breathing out. The sensations of expansion and contraction. <clears throat> and it's helpful to count the breaths at first, so as you breathe in, think one. As you breathe out, think two. And then as there's a pause, you might even think pause or relax. Then as you breathe in, think three. As you breathe out, think four. Then think pause. And so forth. And just see, keep on counting until you lose track, and that's fine. And just start again. 
focus your attention on the pauses between the out-breath and the next in, that's when the mind tends to wander. If you don't like using the breath as your anchor, that's fine. You can use sounds. The sounds in this room are very noticeable, constantly arising and passing. Just receiving the auditory events, adding no judgment or visuals. So even if you hear car horns or sirens, don't visualize what's creating those auditory events. Just allow the sounds to be listened to like it's a recording Another anchor could simply be noticing the lights flickering behind closed eyelids or visualizing a static image, a candle flickering in the darkness. The most important quality of meditation is not succeeding at quieting the mind. The most important is to maintain the right self-regard, which means to always be patient and kind, compassionate, forgiving. So even if your mind wanders again and again, just gently, compassionately, with lots of patience, bring it back to your anchor. The way you would want a kind caregiver to treat a child. And again, in doing this, we're cultivating internally the states that we want to feel present in our lives.
So whenever you're ready, you can gently release the anchor from the front of your attention. Just allow the sounds or the breathing body to still be there, but I'd like you to bring to mind the image of someone you associate with kindness and compassion, acceptance, generosity, just someone who has been available, someone who at certain points of your life when you needed someone to listen was there. This person could be alive or dead. If no one comes to mind, just visualize someone who you believe had these qualities. And just see if you can, more than bring to mind their image, bring to mind the quality of what it feels like to be around someone who creates that feeling of safety, of being seen, being secure, being reliable, a presence that is creates a sense of being at home. How does that feel when we have connected with an old cherished friend or someone who is unconditionally interested, appreciative. What does that feel like? See if you can cultivate that feeling in the body. How do you feel when you're with someone who is safe? Your shoulders relax even further. Is there a smile or softening around the eyes? Is there a ease in the breath? Does the muscles in the back of the neck relax? How do you feel when you feel loved and accepted? And just see if you can create that sense, that felt sense. How does it feel to be appreciated? How does it feel to be seen?
Now for a second reflection, let go of that. And bring to mind the image of yourself at a time of your life where you felt alone. Very often this might have occurred in early teenage years where one felt disconnected from parents, understanding friends, the emotional isolation of not having anyone there to support us and feel caring. Hold the image of yourself at whatever age comes to mind. Don't overthink it. Just whatever image of yourself comes to mind. And just send, not through words, but through a compassionate feeling, love and acceptance and care about this younger version of yourself this more fragile, vulnerable version, giving yourself unconditional, completely reliable attention and understanding. How does it feel to give that love and support and acceptance and unconditional support to ourselves? And finally, radiating this compassion and appreciation, this foremost, this desire that all beings feel loved, secured, even unskillful beings, so that they will not act so frightened and reactively. Sabe. Sata suki hantu sabe sata suki hantu sabe sata suki 
unto Sabesata Suki unto Sabesata Suki unto Sabesata Suki unto Sabesata Suki unto Sabesata Suki unto